and it's all hundred dollar bills that are being flown in. That's the lowest denomination. So a cup of coffee is a hundred dollars. Everything is a hundred dollars. And the warlords themselves are asking, hey, can we get lower denominations? And the agency says no, because they're too heavy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Today, we are again very lucky to have James Wasserstrom back on the podcast. If you follow Kickback, you may remember that we interviewed Jim last month about his time with the UN mission in Kosovo, where he blew the whistle on corruption within the United Nations. But after the interview, we felt like there is still a lot to talk about with Jim, especially the five years he spent as a senior anti-corruption advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. So we invited him again. It's the first time that Jim talks publicly about his time in Afghanistan, and again he provides fascinating insights into the challenges of fighting corruption in a war zone. If you like what we do here at Kickback, please leave us a positive review wherever you get your podcast from. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We would also greatly appreciate it if you could post about Kickback on social media. Now over to the interview with Jim Wasserstrom and Matthew Stevenson. Greetings and welcome to Kickback. This is Matthew Stevenson and today I'm thrilled to have James Wasserstrom back on the podcast for a second episode. And so I'm very happy, Jim, that you were able to spare uh, another hour for me and for our listeners to talk about this aspect of your work. So welcome back to the Kickback Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Maybe we can get started by talking a little bit about what brought you to Afghanistan. So I don't want to make you do everything you did in the last episode of our show and go through the whole story, but just bring our listeners up to speed a little bit after your experience with the United Nations, which didn't end so well. You were doing a lot of work to try to improve whistleblower protections in the UN system. Um, what ended up bringing you to Afghanistan? And once there, how did you get involved specifically in working on anti-corruption projects in Afghanistan? Uh, I found my way to, to Afghanistan because uh, as a result of my whistleblowing, the UN kicked me out. They found all kinds of mechanisms to terminate me. And so they used them. And I was, my career at the UN was dead. So when I was looking for work, as I, you may recall from, from the previous episode, at that point, I was devastated uh, psychologically and financially. Was Things were tough uh, by pure coincidence, I noticed on a website, USA Jobs, that the US government was actually hiring for people to do development work in Afghanistan. So I was just one among thousands of people who applied for that position. This was probably six months or so after, six or nine months after I had been terminated by the UN. And uh, it was during the so-called surge uh, under the new President Obama at that time. And uh, I was uh, hired very quickly, actually, and given a provisional secret clearance, which allowed me to travel relatively quickly out to, to Afghanistan. Uh, I had no idea what my assignment was going to be. And in order to go, of course, I had to go through all this kind of training 
on things like uh, on evasive driving, all kinds of security-related training, evasive driving, handling weapons, terrorist attacks, and what to do under those circumstances. So I, you know, I went through all of that and was shipped out in October of 2009 and was found out that I was, when I got to Kabul, that I was being sent to Jalalabad Airfield, which is right on the border with Pakistan or very close to it where I was going to be, be in a USAID advisor working directly side by side with a military commander, a colonel at the time, and advising him and the USAID staff that were operating hearts and minds programs, essentially, in four provinces that were very, what they call kinetic, meaning very violent provinces. So from having had no real experience working with the military of any country, I became an advisor at an airbase uh, right on the front line in the middle of a war, which was a unique experience in my life. And the military there, the, the commander, had kicked out three or four previous UAD, USAID advisors over the previous six or eight months. So I was told that this was someone who was very difficult to please and, you know, good luck kind of thing. So I, I went to face that. But on the way through Kabul, as I was getting my briefings in Kabul, I had mentioned to someone in the State Department, because uh, I was being briefed by both the State Department and USAID, uh, that uh, I told the State Department person that I had actually done some work in anti-corruption in Kosovo. And the embassy was just beginning to recognize that it needed to have a position on fighting corruption. Uh, and they had no expertise there. So the State Department officer I spoke to, very dynamic and still one of my close friends, said, wow, we really need you. So I said, well, I'm on my way to Jalalabad, so you know where to find me. So she, she brought me to meet one of the five ambassadors, because at the embassy at the time we had five ambassador-level individuals. Uh, there was the main ambassador, at that time former General Eikenberry, and then there were four sort of sub-ambassadors. And so she brought me to the one who was in charge of, of the rule of law area. I met him, and he said, yeah, we need you, and we'll find a way to bring you up here as soon as we can. I said, Okay. So then I went down and I worked for a few months in Jalalabad. And uh, that was a very powerful experience because I, it was the first time I had a, a close look at how our military operates in a war zone. And also with the, the loss of life that took place, uh, the 20 or 30 young soldiers who died in the few months that I was there, some of whom I had had lunch or dinner with in the dining hall. Uh, the DFAC, dining facility, as the military calls it. And I was very impressed, and I enjoyed working with them tremendously. It was a very, very positive experience to be part of that, especially under such difficult circumstances. So however I may feel about the war itself, which was negative in many ways, I felt very strongly about the work that those people were doing. Anyway, after a period of time, I was brought up to uh, the embassy in Kabul to work in this office uh, called the Rule of Law Office that was under the State Department. So I was a USAID staffer assigned to work in this office. And at the time, working on corruption was a fraught issue because the, the US government's position was that this is an Afghan problem that, that is getting in our way. 
And it didn't take a genius to figure out that it wasn't, it, it, yes, it was an Afghan problem, but it was one that was largely created by the U.S., that we had been so careless in pouring tons of money with almost with very few real restrictions on it into a, a very poor country where corruption was not uncommon. So it's like pouring vast quantity of water into a leaky pipe system and expecting it to reach its, to reach its intended destination. Guess what? It goes all over the place. And that's exactly what was happening with the hundreds of millions, billions of dollars that the U.S. was spending, particularly on the military side, but also on the development side, on the USAID and State Department side. And there was a very kind of cavalier, a very kind of, you know, well, that's what it kind of costs to do business. And so I kind of wondered, what could I, I do or what could a few of us do to actually change that mentality because there was a recognition that corruption was, was a huge problem. And there was some, some vague notion that this, but this was more sort of siphoning off funds and creating this corrupt Karzai government because it was happening under Karzai who was notoriously corrupt uh, and his people were. And the environment for, for, for fighting corruption was toxic. There was absolutely no support for it uh, on the Afghan side. And the support on the U.S. side was weak or mixed. So the idea was to try to get the word out that this is undermining our effort in creating a government that has any credibility with the Afghan people because they see all of these Afghan warlords uh, enriching themselves at the U.S. trough. Uh, and that money, which the Afghans assumed was, was meant for them, they weren't seeing any of it. It was all being sucked up by these... Uh, powerful individuals who were all part of Karzai's administration. And the military at that point got furious when I would point out to them that you're creating a problem which is undermining the whole effort. Absolutely not. I was shouted down when I started raising these things and considered somehow disloyal or a thorn. And uh, that was hard. That was a very hard 2010 when I first got started doing this. This was hard, but uh, there were some at high levels, both in Kabul and in Washington, who recognized that this was at least worth addressing, or at least looking at closely. And so six or eight months into the effort, the military, fortunately, decided to establish a task force that would look at the matter seriously and, and see if, what could be done about it. The task force uh, was led by then Brigadier General H.R. McMaster, who eventually became, uh, as we all know, the National Security Advisor in the current administration. And I was, was sort of the senior civilian with the anti-corruption expertise. And there were some other people that, that came in on the military side who, came, who were there for short periods of time who helped to get this task force, which is what was called Task Force Shafafiat, off the ground. At the same time that some of us at the embassy were trying to initiate uh, programs to fight corruption. And by that, I mean that we were doing typical kind of USAID development programs like us providing technical assistance to the Afghan government's completely ineffective uh, anti-corruption agency, which was called the High Office of Oversight and Anti-Corruption, which was completely hopeless. And that was obvious from the get-go. And I wanted to pull the plug on the project almost immediately after it got started, because it was clearly not going to have any impact. 
but then also to figure out how we could politically become more active in uh, putting pressure on the Afghan government to clean up its act, uh, which meant to some extent cleaning up our act too. And it was really pushing a rock uphill only to see it fall down, a Sisyphean task. I mean, it, it was hard on both sides. The military was very aggressive in the fight against corruption, but was focused entirely externally. This was an Afghan problem that we were not really contributing to. That was their attitude in the beginning. We needed to get them to face it. On the civilian side, we should confront it, but we need these people. We, we really can't press too hard because we really don't, we really can't afford to shake things up very much, which is a, a classic half measure, which is completely unsatisfactory. Uh, I, they would say, well, when they said, oh, well, we need him. So I said, I would say things like, well, this is the same thing I found in Kosovo. At the beginning of an intervention, we need them because we need peace and stability. In the middle of the intervention, we need them because we need the stability. And at the end of the intervention, we don't care because we're leaving. And so we don't, we're not going to deal with it. So there's no time in any of these interventions when it's a good time to, to address corruption. Over and over and over again, I would say these things because it was so obvious that they really weren't committed to it if it interfered with the agenda, despite the fact that the agenda was going to fail because of corruption, because of a failure to establish good governance. And it, it, it took a long time and some real catastrophes along the way, for example, with Kabul Bank, to really shake things up enough that people began to take it seriously, both on the military side and on the civilian side, that it was our problem, uh, that we were part of the problem, not just the Afghans. That took years to penetrate. I want to ask you more about that in just a second, and in particular, how minds changed and also what you just said about the ways that uh, corruption actually undermined the U.S. efforts to stabilize Afghanistan and to fight um, terrorism. But before we get there, I wanted to pick up on something you actually touched, you just mentioned briefly, and I'd love to ask you to- By the way, Matthew, let me say, just, just before we go into that, sure. this is not a unique situation. I'm talking about, this was the case in Kosovo, this is the case in, was it in Afghanistan, and it's the case in most of our interventions abroad. So this you read is, my mind, actually, because I was going to ask you about Kosovo. A general principle. This is absolutely a recurring theme in everything we've been doing, whether it's Syria or elsewhere. It is a constant problem. It is always dropped to the bottom of the list when it should be near the top. So I wanted to ask you precisely about your experience in Kosovo, because while recognizing, of course, that you have a general expertise in anti-corruption, having studied it and worked on it in a variety of contexts, my impression is that you're principal on the ground experience dealing with corruption related issues was your experience working with the UN mission in Kosovo. Um, I understand the Kosovo situation, and the Afghanistan situation are in some respects quite different. Kosovo was a post-conflict situation, whereas Afghanistan was an active conflict situation. The regions of the world are clearly very different. The political and social histories are, are clearly very different. But there are other respects, and you just noted, I think, some of them in which they're similar. So, um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more, having had the, not unique maybe, but rather unusual experience of having, having extensive on the ground, you know, active work 
in two of these extremely challenging environments, Kosovo and Afghanistan, to say a little bit about the ways in which they're similar and the ways in which they're different. So the forms that the corruption takes, the greatest corruption challenges, the uh, approaches to corruption, fighting corruption that would be most effective. In what ways did you feel like when you were in Afghanistan, what you'd seen and learned about in Kosovo was applicable to your new situation? And in what ways did you say, huh, this actually is different from what I've seen before. The Afghan situation is not the same as the Kosovo situation. There's some really important differences here. I'd love for you to reflect on, again, both the similarities and the differences between these two challenging situations that you worked on. Yes, and let me add uh, to what you just said that from Afghanistan, I went to work on Ukraine uh, for three years. So I have those three case studies uh, of long-term commitment because I was resident in Kosovo for six years. I was resident in Afghanistan for five years. I was non-resident, but traveling to Ukraine every couple of months, every few months for 16 or 17 visits over a three-year period. So yes, I, I, was, I was immersed in this. So to your question, in Kosovo, my focus was really uh, on the public utilities. And they were basically cash cows for corrupt individuals. It cut across all the political parties. It really didn't matter who was in power. They were all getting cash out of these uh, public utilities. And when it came to things like public bidding, uh, procurement and finance and uh, you know, human resources, they were all rigging the bids. They were all stuffing the place full of their completely corrupt and incompetent cronies and family. And they were all stealing money every way they possibly could. And that would be from collections, uh, from receipts. And since they were the biggest, the public utilities were the biggest part of Kosovo's economy, the largest single part of its GDP, it was all quite lucrative and it was unrestrained. And the UN mainly turned a blind eye to this. I got there and when I was brought in to look at these problems, it was already four years into the intervention. My operation didn't start up until 2003. So it was four years of these patterns being established. And the same thing in Afghanistan. I came in in 2010 to do this kind of work. So it was eight years. And one of the lessons that is absolutely clear, and I've, and I've said this before, you, you cannot wait on four or six or eight years into one of these interventions to actually start dealing with this problem. You need to deal with it from the get-go, from the first day. Because if you're not conscious of the impact of your footprint, no matter whether you call it light or heavy or somewhere in between, uh, you're going to distort the, the post-conflict or conflict economy with your hundreds of millions of dollars in both cases. And how that gets distorted in all these different ways that I've mentioned, it's really hard to extirpate it, to pull it by its roots once those roots are really firm and deep. And that is absolutely the case in both countries. And I would say in Ukraine too, for that matter. Uh, so that is absolutely clear. It has to be, you have to address it in the settlement agreement. And you cannot keep using the excuse, well, peace at any cost. I completely agree. It's really important, but it should not be unconditional. And we should not sell ourselves to these, to these individuals who we know are corrupt. None of this was unknown at the time. There were ample warnings, both in the, at the outset 
in Kosovo and in Afghanistan, that this was a risk. But the diplomats, as, I, as I've said before, uh, always put this at the bottom of the list, and it's much too important to let something like that interfere. And of course, what ends up happening is it completely distorts uh, the governance agenda that we have in these countries, as it has been very destructive in Kosovo to this day, which is, which is notoriously corrupt, as is its political class. And of course, Afghanistan makes Kosovo look like, look like a kindergarten when it comes to corruption. That's at least one major lesson. I mean, in Afghanistan, the U.S. role was far more direct in creating corruption. I mean, when you have plane loads of cash being flown in by the CIA in the early days of that intervention, and it's all $100 bills that are being flown in, that's the lowest denomination. So a cup of coffee is $100. Everything is $100. And the warlords themselves are asking, hey, can we get lower denominations? And the agency says, no, because it's, they're too heavy. It's already heavy enough for be flying in all this cash. And if we do, if it's 50s, that's double the plane loads. If it's 20s, it's five times the plane load. So no. You said a moment ago something intriguing, and I want to ask you to say a little bit more about it. You talked about how you said the political agenda was distorted. You said our political agenda, I assume you mean by our, like the United States political agenda in places like Kosovo and Afghanistan was, was distorted. Can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by distorted? So in, in what was, I think I have a general sense of what you're talking about, but can you maybe um, spell that out a little bit more? What kinds of distortions to the political agenda are you talking about? Let's talk about Afghanistan. We can talk, we'll talk about Kosovo also. Once you start feeding these warlords with vast amounts of cash, they're able to buy armies. They're able to buy private militias. They already have them, but now they can, then they can afford to establish larger militias. They can afford to buy territories. Uh, they can afford to, to place their people in key positions just by bribing. Uh, and in Afghanistan, of course, it was, it was an open secret that it was pay to play. You know, certain positions in the Afghan government that were very lucrative, like working in customs or places that were revenue generating, were for sale. You would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy that position, usually with, with patronage, pay your patron, who would then feed the money to people in the Karzai administration. They would place that individual in that job, and then he was responsible for, for making a profit off of that position. So the 300, whatever, $250,000 for a job in customs, which is a huge amount of money in Afghanistan, where the average income is in the hundreds of dollars per year, you were under pressure to, uh, to produce. By that, I mean produce corruption that would, that would pay your benefactor and yourself. That, of course, creates an enormous distortion in terms of democratic governance. I mean, come on. That creates you know, huge incentives to uh, corrupt the system. And in so doing, you alienate uh, the, the Afghan population, which may initially have believed that good was going to come of this intervention, which they clearly did. And after a point, they realized that not much good and maybe a lot of bad is coming because they know these warlords are bad. And so they become less supportive of the Afghan government that we install. And if not more supportive, and I think actually they are and were more supportive of the Taliban uh, because of this, they at least are are more neutral about it. I'm talking about the countryside, not so much the Western elites uh, in the cities. So what you're just spelling out there seems to be, I assume, part of the way that you and your colleagues who wanted to put more priority in this issue would try to persuade the military and diplomatic leaders to pay more attention to this issue. 
I'd love to invite you um, to say a little bit more about that, because of course, one of the challenges, not only in you know, high stress, very volatile situations like Afghanistan, but just generally that anti-corruption advocates face, whether they're inside a government organization or outside of it, is how do you persuade people to take this issue seriously when there seem to be so many other issues competing for attention on the agenda? So let me, let's pre pretend for the moment that I'm one of these people that you were dealing with in Afghanistan, one of these US military uh, leaders, and, and I could imagine, and if I'm totally off base in terms of their mentality, correct me, but I imagine they might say something like this. Look, we got this warlord figure. He's either gonna support us or he's gonna support the Taliban. If he supports the Taliban, then you know, we're gonna get more Al-Qaeda and other terrorist activity. Uh, they're gonna be controlling strategic areas. There's gonna be more violence, more people, uh, are going to get, more of our people are going to get killed. Um, so we need to get this warlord on our side. I wish we lived in a world where we could do this through gentle persuasion and reasoned argument, but this guy is a fact of life and he's either going to support the Taliban or us and better to bribe him to join our side than to try to crush him militarily. And so the costs of, including the costs of the systemic corruption that are going to be encouraged by giving this guy like $250,000 to throw his weight behind the U.S. are just outweighed by the benefits. So again, I imagine that's the sort of thing you would hear from these people. Um, what do you say in response to try to convince someone who's taking that position that this is a misguided or short-sighted position? You're absolutely right. That was very often the counter argument, particularly from the military, and to some extent also on the political side, meaning the State Department. And one of the revelations for me of the pragmatism of the realpolitik of being in a war zone is that I was not prepared to argue to fight corruption if it meant the loss of lives of innocent people, uh, whether it was civilians uh, on the Afghan side or if it came to losing the lives of U.S. servicemen and women. That was a simple fact that that trumps the fight against corruption, plain and simple in my mind. However, these guys often have a shelf life. They are not always on our side. And this is being very practical. At a certain point, their utility to the U.S. government or to the effort becomes marginal at best or we discover they're playing both sides of the street, which happens far more frequently than we were and are prepared to admit. At that point, guess what? It's time to cut that guy loose and turn around and go after him for the, the kinds of crime that we may have turned a blind eye to when he was useful. This is just the reality of this kind of work in a war zone when you're fighting a war. And the, the point that I had to make over and over again was just because this guy was instrumental in force protection five years ago or three years ago, but now we discover that he is brutalizing his own people and our association with him is undermining us, then we need to stop doing that. And that's a slightly different point than the one I just made. So there was the one that serves US force protection and that is not forever. And then there's the one of brutality against his own citizenry, which, and we are recognized as being his bedfellow, and we need to cut that cord because it is undermining us. So there were two ways to shake 
that point of view. And when it came to, to either one of them, you had to have irrefutable evidence. I mean, it was like you had to be arguing in a courtroom, which I found exhausting and difficult uh, to get through because very often what would happen is that leadership, uh, whether military or civilian, but particularly military, because they were used to dealing with a particular individual and they had such short rotations, they were gone after six months, nine months, maximum a year, and I was still there. And I would say to the incoming person, whether it was state, at the State Department or in the military, guess what? This guy is a scumbag. We need to get rid of him. We need to stop working with this man. And because that there had been this hand, you know, handover, takeover kind of thing, well, my predecessor said he was okay, and I would say your predecessor, your predecessor was wrong. Oh, well, I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, and then it would take, take them with me sitting there pointing out, see, 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 over the next three, four, five, six months to, to point out how bad these people were. And then they would come around. But it was a, a hard-fought effort every time, whether it was at the State Department or uh, with the military. And Let there were some in the military who flat out resisted this. And, it, and I remember at a meeting, which was held with the entire international community, what we used to call the Transparency and Accountability Working Group, because it was co-chaired with, by me and by the UN, and the UN was really uncomfortable with the, with the use of the word anti-corruption. Uh, so they insisted that we call this the Transparency and Accountability Working Group, which is okay, went along with that. And so the, all of those at the embassies and, and development agencies, international community, was were around, sitting around a table. And we also had invited a key Afghan uh, anti-corruption NGO, Integrity Watch Afghanistan. So they were present for this particular meeting. We, we invited a very senior civilian on the military side to talk about the military's policy on anti-corruption. And the guy walked in and said to all of the people in the room, including the Afghan NGO, what I'm about to say to you is, I know it's going to disappoint you, but we really don't give a, and I'll leave, delete the expletive, about corruption. Can you imagine in the middle of a war where corruption is undermining everything, he, he comes in and says this, it's just, you know, that, that if, if we lose money that way, but we achieve the result that we want, that's all we care about. It was devastating. My jaw dropped, and I went right back to the ambassador and the State Department and said, is this our policy? Because that's what we just heard. This is and so fascinating and, and disappointing to me. I mean, I've heard this basic story from others as well, but I think about this especially in the context of allegedly the lessons that the United States government, the United States military learned coming out of the Vietnam War about the importance of winning hearts and minds as opposed to just racking up body counts and destroying structures. And General Petraeus in his role in drafting the counterinsurgency manual that was supposed to be the new thinking about especially these kinds of interventions where you're not dealing with a conventional army about the importance of, again, hearts and minds has said so much has become kind of a cliche, but the idea that you need the support of the population, which means you need to present it in both the U.S., military and the other intervening military forces themselves and the governments they support need to be perceived by the population as in some sense legitimate and having a basic degree of integrity. There seems to be such a disconnect, which what I thought had become almost the conventional wisdom of modern counterinsurgency doctrine and this dismissive attitude towards corruption specifically, which seems maybe to you and me so obviously connected 
with the hearts and minds problem. Do you have a sense of, of why this is? Is it, is it that some members of the military, despite what's allegedly the modern thinking on counterinsurgency, still think it's basically about destroying structures and, and killing enemies? Or do you think that there's just not a sufficient appreciation of the extent to which corruption and related government integrity issues actually are integrally associated with winning hearts and minds? Let's just take a, take a second to talk about the reality of the coin strategy, as you're, as you're referring to, the counterintelligence, counterinsurgency strategy, which, which we call the coin strategy. I mean, that's sort of the common abbreviation for it. The coin strategy, the, the hearts and minds part of that was not well handled. In fact, it was poorly handled because the way it, the way it actually translated in the field level uh, and not much has been written about, I'm not breaking new ground here, but I, I observed it firsthand when I, was, when I was working in Jalalabad, was to find out what villagers whose support we were trying to, to win, what would they like in their village? And very often it would be clean water or would be irrigation schemes. It might be a school and so on. So yes, we would go ahead and we would build those structures. Now, we wouldn't build them directly this is where the problem comes in. We would hire a local contracting firm to, to go ahead and do that work. And, and because we had so much money for this purpose, and the way the government works is the more you spend, the more money you can ask for. So, of course, there was this, and, and also the fact that we wanted to show results for our money. How many schools did we build? How many dams did we, did we build? And so on and so on. How many miles of road? did we construct? We really didn't care. We didn't look that closely at, at the process. All we cared about was the result. And in the course of that process, we ended up hiring firms, if they weren't actually controlled by the provincial governor or his people directly, therefore, which everybody in the village knew, they would be controlled by local warlords, which everybody in the village knew. And they would see a massive sum of money that would be given to the contracting firm, of which 70 or 80% would be sucked up by the governor and his cronies, and a small portion of that would actually be used to build a dam which was substandard, or a school that, that fell apart. And this has been well documented. But it didn't matter to us, because we, we could say, we built 50 schools. And so that program was self-defeating. By the way, often in areas that were kinetic, that were violent, we would, be, we would be hiring firms that were actually Taliban-owned, supported, run, whatever. There, there was a Taliban hand in it. So we were not just feeding corruption directly, which we were doing. We were either directly or indirectly providing funds to the enemy. And this was not unknown. There were reports that were coming in from people, Afghans mainly, who were saying, do you know? that this contractor, his brother, is the Taliban commander you're fighting against. These are real cases, but I'm not thinking of one in particular when I say this. And, and people would say, I don't want to hear that. So again, this is extremely distressing in so many ways. Is it your impression that over the course of your time in Afghanistan, or subsequently, since I'm sure you continue to follow these issues, even though you're no longer on the ground there, that there has been substantial improvement in the way the US government, the military, the diplomats, and others address this issue? Or you referred before to the Sisyphean task of pushing the rock up the hill and then watching it fall back down again. Do you kind of feel like that the lessons have still not been 
learned? I think the U.S. in Afghanistan has learned some lessons. And I think that is largely due to the transparency and accountability that has been imposed on the various arms of the U.S. government operating in Afghanistan by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. There's been, particularly in the early years, I, I don't know recently, but the office was established, I believe, 2004, 5, 6. I can't remember exactly. And it still exists. And it, it tracks the utilization and effectiveness of U.S. Uh, funds spent on Afghan reconstruction. And I worked in the lessons learned area. I led the the team that drafted the report on the U.S. contribution to corruption in Afghanistan, which is an open source document uh, from which the so-called Afghanistan papers were drawn. They were basically our interviews that we conducted with many individuals involved in the uh, fight against corruption while I was there, and their uh, candid reflections on our, on our effectiveness. So I think that there are lessons that have been learned. Partly it's because they can't get away with having with ignoring them because there's a watchdog, an oversight watchdog on the premises of the embassy uh, that is watching all of this day-to-day in real time. Another important lesson, going back to your point uh, of Kosovo as well as Afghanistan, oversight of these issues cannot be done post facto. Audits, investigations, wonderful. They're post facto. The crime has been committed. The money has been stolen. The bridge has already been built poorly. You need someone there with teeth that can point out when things are going off the tracks, off the rails, in the moment, not three years later, that can arrest people in the moment, not after years of investigation, when everybody is gone and the money has gone into into Delaware. Uh, or, or some other tax haven. So this is something that is a constant in, in all these interventions. Uh, and no matter who's doing them, there is no agency that does this in real time, except at the moment, SIGAR, as it's called, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction in Afghanistan. And of course, they've talked about, they're, they're now trying to institute a similar thing for the pandemic relief funds. Of course, that's been gutted, as we know. But speaking at least for these kinds of interventions, in as much as we're going to be doing them, which we almost certainly will over and over again, there needs to be real-time oversight with teeth uh, as these interventions are taking place. So we're almost at the end of our, our time. I just want to ask you about maybe one or two things that are related to some of the themes that you've already brought up in the course of the conversation. And I want to think now about what kinds of pressure the U.S. government, or could be the international community, whatever, should bring to bear on the leadership of the government in the countries where these uh, interventions are taking place. So we discussed earlier what the posture should be with respect to warlords and should we try to pay them off or whatever. But let's talk about the Karzai government and what the U.S. can or should do with respect to pressuring that government. And maybe let me bring up two aspects of the question that I I think are maybe interesting. So One has to do with the amount of corruption in the government that you're willing in some sense to tolerate and still work with the government and do business with the government and when you just decide that they're they're not a a reasonable partner. So it's it's one view 
which it seems like some people had at least in the beginning, is this is not our issue. We don't care. This is an issue. Like the Afghans can deal with corruption, the Afghan government, not our business. The other end of the spectrum would be a kind of zero tolerance policy. And you see the rhetoric of zero tolerance, at least some general discussions of anti-corruption, that like if the Karzai government is corrupt, if it's not dealing with corruption, we're just not going to deal with them. It seems like that's a very difficult position to maintain if that's the government you've got to work with, right? All governments have corruption problems to some degree. So one aspect of the question I want to put to you is maybe putting it in terms of the tolerance level isn't quite the right way to put it because we should never tolerate corruption. But how ought you manage a situation where you've got to work with this government in some respects? Maybe in some respects, certain aspects of the government really do want to promote certain kinds of reforms in some way but they also have a really serious corruption problem. How do you balance that? The second question I want to ask, it's related, maybe a little bit different. It's inspired by uh, an exchange I observed actually in another one of the countries where you have some very recent expertise in Ukraine. And that has to do with how much of the pressure the international community puts on the government should be about holding corrupt individuals personally accountable for their corrupt behavior, putting, arresting people, putting people in jail, kicking them out of the government and so forth. And how much should be about changing systems, altering incentives, deregulating the economy or re-regulating the economy or or whatnot? And the the debate, just to give a little more context here, the exchange that I saw with respect to Ukraine had to do with a couple of well-credentialed international expert types saying, I think this was a little while back, maybe been more than a year ago before the Zelensky election, said something like, the US and the international community are making a big mistake by pushing so hard to arrest individuals and put them in jail. We have to understand it's a bad system. We should be pushing to change the system. If we just try to get people arrested and thrown in jail, we're just going to destabilize what's basically a reformist government. And a bunch of Ukrainian NGO leaders said, basically, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. We need to hold these people individually, personally accountable. And the Western institutions can and should be pushing for that kind of individual accountability. And again, it's, it's not exactly an either-or trade-off, but there is a difference in emphasis in terms of the strategy, whether you're going to put pressure on the government to you know, find the bad apples, maybe they're all bad apples, and arrest them and put them in jail, and how much of the attitude is going to be, look, there's a lot of entrenched corruption, we need to deal with it, but we need to deal with the system that creates the incentives to be corrupt rather than trying to find... Uh, you know, a few scalps to nail to the wall, which would be the pejorative way some of these people might put it. So I hope the question is clear, but I'm interested <laughs> in your perspective on those kinds of issues. You know, when you, when you, it's either the U.S. government or the international community, your, your partner government is imperfect to say the least. There's a lot of corruption. How do you deal with them? What should the posture be? What should you push for? What should you not push for? What advice would you give uh, with respect to Afghanistan, with respect to Ukraine, with respect to any of the other countries where you have expertise? Sure. Let me go back just uh, to take a minute to, uh, to your question of levels of acceptable or tolerable corruption. Uh, to me, the answer is zero. Uh, let me be very clear about that. And I'll give you just one quick story on that. When I was in Kosovo in charge of uh, oversight of the public utilities, I blocked privatization because the process was so corrupt that the, only the worst elements were prepared to bid on it. And by that, I mean Serb-Albanian organized crime syndicates because organized crime transcends political difference. So even though the Serbs and the Albanians were at each other's throats over a variety of issues, not when it came to organized crime. That was, a, that was working fine. So they were the ones who were doing a lot of the bidding and I, I stopped privatization. 
So a very high-ranking official of the European Union came to me, along with uh, one of her deputies, and she wanted to know why I was blocking this. And her, her deputy said, after all, isn't corruption just the way things are done in places like this? By the way, he came from a very corrupt country within the European Union. So I said, hmm, so you're asking me what is the acceptable level of corruption in Kosovo? I said, well, the EU has standards in all kinds of areas. So if you can tell me what the EU standard is for the acceptable level of corruption, I will happily follow that. Of course, they looked at each other and they said, this conversation is over. And I said, you're right. This conversation is over. The answer is zero. Now, that's obviously, that's the ideal. That's the optimal. We work toward that. It's never zero. And that's, that's, a, that's the case everywhere. Now, turning to your questions, the main way that we can influence, we outsiders, can influence uh, the behavior of these governments is both political and it's economic. If our political interventions, for whatever reason, fall on deaf ears, then what is proven effective in every one of the instances that, you, that we've talked about, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Ukraine, is to pull the plug on the money. That's what they really want from us. They don't really want anything else, to be honest. So you stop your aid, you ask the IMF, which, by the way, the West controls completely, and the World Bank, uh, and you say, guess what? Your extended credit facility is suspended un unless you clean this mess up. And by the mess, uh, in answer to your second question, you're talking about there's a spectrum of things that we do in the anti-corruption world, as I'm sure you know. There are things that are preventative, which is all of the things you talk about with systemic change. Those are all preventative measures. That's regulation, that's changing bidding procedures, that's eliminating discretionary authorities that people have, which they abuse, uh, and so on. Those are all preventative measures. And then the, at, the, at the far end of that spectrum, we get to curative. The curative ones are by far the most difficult to achieve. And that's investigation, arrest, conviction, and imprisonment. That happens, you might as well bolt from the clear blue sky in most of these places. That is rarely, if ever, going to happen. So many things have to, take, have to fall in place for that to happen in a legitimate way that it is absolutely worth pursuing, but one must be realistic about how likely you are to be, uh, be effective. Now, that is within their home environments. We, fortunately, in the United States and now in Canada and in the UK, there are things that are, there are sanctions that we impose on these people because they're not being punished in their own countries. This is the global Magnitsky kind of sanction and the Canadian equivalent and the, and the British equivalent. Uh, which are in place. And the European Union is talking about doing something, but that probably, given how they function and their high tolerance for corruption generally, that will probably, that will happen in my, children, my grandchildren's lifetime. I, I would love to think it would happen faster, but uh, that's not how the EU works, despite the goodwill of uh, some of the member states. So yes, those would be my, my kind of consolidated answer to your question. Conditionality, conditionality, conditionality and whether that, that is political conditionality, guess what? We're going to deport all of your friends and relations living in our country who are going to school here, who've parked their money here. They're all going to be deported, and you're going to be banned from coming here. 
And that can be across Western Europe. It can be across Canada and the U.S., North America. That hurts. When we talked about doing that in Afghanistan, we knew, and I'm not going to say how we knew, we knew that there were alarms and red flags going up all over town when we threatened to do that kind of thing. Unfortunately, we, we uh, didn't have the political will or commitment very often to carry through on these kinds of things because, oh, you know, that hand-wringing that would go on, oh, we need them, we need them, we need them. We don't really need them. And we, we showed that we really don't really need these people in their present form. So that, that's a red herring, actually. It just justifies inaction and lassitude and bad thinking on the part of policymakers in Washington in particular, no matter what party. Well, I think that clarion call for taking a strong and unapologetic stand against corruption wherever it occurs is a perfect note on which to end this conversation. I'm also glad you brought up the importance of uh, rejecting bad thinking and embracing good thinking. I certainly hope that uh, this podcast generally and this episode in particular is helpful uh, in encouraging the kinds of thinking on these issues that will be most productive in dealing with this extraordinarily difficult problem. Uh, Jim, thank you again for sharing uh, uh, your time with us uh, on a second occasion to discuss these extraordinarily challenging insights. Uh, again, as you mentioned in the interview, and I'll just restate for our audience, it's, it's rare that someone has had this degree of on-the-ground experience in not one, not two, but three extraordinarily challenging environments where uh, Western governments or institutions have been uh, directly involved in attempting to achieve governance transformations under extraordinarily fraught conditions. Uh, I very much appreciate your sharing your insights. I'm sure our listeners do too. Uh, this again has been uh, an episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Matthew Stevenson and our guest today for the second time has been James Wasserstrom. Thank you so much, James. Thanks, Matthew. I really appreciate having been invited to do it again. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Jim's work, please check out the previous interview with him and also the show notes of both episodes. If you want to get updates about Kickback, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We are a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Kickback is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.